0: What's up, Gasol Education Nation? Today's episode is brought to you by The Payday
1: Practice and our good friends Jeff Langmaid and Jason Deech. So how would Seth Gooden, Gary Vee, and Tim Ferriss create a chiropractic practice? The answer is in this book right here. So our good friends Jeff Langmange and Jason Deitch, uh, they created the payday practice to basically show you how you cover your monthly expenses in one day every month. Guaranteed, generating monthly recurring revenue in your practice can create financial freedom, eliminate chronic financial stress, and turn the first day of each month from, damn, it's time to start over, to payday.
0: Get a free copy today at www.thepaydaypractice.com. The Payday Practice will show you the exact step-by-step process that you can use to generate monthly recurring revenue in your practice. Get your free copy today at www.thepaydaypractice.com.
1: All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Gestalt Education Show. Uh, we're back in the uh, the the vault. The, sh- the vault, the shelter, whatever the hell we call this thing. We're in uh, deep in the Winchester household uh, in Brett's uh, library and. Uh, we we're we we're kind of looking at some old books. We we talked about this with shout-out, too. You got some old stuff in here, so oh, I got some classics. Yeah, so so obviously we're sitting down with uh, Michael Shacklock, our second one this weekend. Uh, he's a trooper. We've fed him full of wine and some good food and stuff to, to get him up for we're this, and so uh, yeah. We so last night we we've taken a tour of Australia and New Zealand the entire time that he's been here, and so mm-hmm. last night we had this crazy bottle of Velvet Glove, uh, Velvet, Velvet Glove, Velvet uh, Glove, which is a us and uh it was insane they bring it out brought it out to us in a velvet uh like a, a, a carrying pouch. case yeah it was crazy so uh that was amazing that'll go in our, our hall of fame at the office you, you signed it so that's awesome And then tonight we're, we're having a little night capped with this uh this podcast with some paradigm merlot yeah.
0: not from australia but a great bottle no
1: it's from oakville so great bottle of wine though it's really really good so good. Yeah, cool. uh well michael we uh you entertained us with our our pti style of uh, uh some quick hitters earlier today with with some diagnosis and stuff but today we uh tonight we thought we'd kind of chill out with a little bit of a lighter conversation if you will and kind of talk about the misconceptions with neurodynamics so um we we got some great uh questions and some thoughts that we we thought out that we we're gonna let you kind of riff on but uh I, I started down the path of the old books and this is kind of an older book too isn't it right mm, here yeah it is it did is. you want to kind of talk yeah, us through what can, that is
2: yeah sure um This is called Biomechanics of the Nervous System, Brieg Revisited. Now, Alf Brigg, Dr. Alf Brigg was a a neurosurgeon from Sweden, and from the 1940s to the 1980s, he researched in detail movements of the central nervous system, brain, spinal cord, cranial nerves, ventricles, nerve roots and so forth, uh, dura and so forth. Um, uh, in cadavers, right through to uh, patients, he did radiology on them and saw their nervous system reposition when, they cha- when he did neurodynamic testing, and he figured out what certain movements could ease and provoke pain and things like radiculopathy. Now that to me was a big breakthrough because it was the first time you could see a nerve move, or between frames anyway, uh, where you could put force on it, provoke patient's pain, uh, change the head position, move the lumbar nerve root, and give the patient pain relief. that's just an example now he was the Leonardo da Vinci of biomechanics of the nervous system to the point where his work will probably never be uh, superseded or repeated Uh, and the reason I'm impressed with it is because he did over a long period of time he got down to the cellular level through histology Uh, you you can see uh, axons being bent and straightened with different positions and he also did photoelastic modeling of force distribution in the spinal cord to try and predict where where forces would go and, and what they would do now what i'm i realize i'm realizing is that he was creating a general theory uh, of physics and simply production with what he was doing and that all boiled down to tension and if you think of a lumbar nerve root it's got to pass a longer course around a disc hernia, tension because it's shorter and tighter it's a, it's a fine or microscopic level of evaluation, but the com- it turns out that compression gravitates to, same, to similar mechanisms, to tension, because neurodynamic tests and the tension pattern of movements are abnormal in these people, and even though it starts with a compression, it gravitates to tension. So if we get down to a reductionist level, probably the tension stuff that he did was right. Now we we look at a, at a more superficial level through movement, for instance, nerve root moving on and off a disc. Um, that's not strictly tension, but at a fine level, it has to create symptoms probably through ex- extension or, or separation of cells uh, or ion channels through the tension mechanism. And so, to me, it's 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 foundational work uh i must say he's, he's well often well known in the chiropractic area not so much in the physical therapy although it is known there and so for me um that to, what was historical unprecedented and foundational
0: mm-hmm. did you get to did you have personal contact with
2: Yes, I did. I had the good fortune of I remember the very time I started planning to meet him. It was in Switzerland in a place called Baddraragas, um, which is a, a, it was a physical therapy type uh, a, a, um, postgraduate education center where they were getting external presenters and teachers to teach people ongoing professional education. And I was it's a huge old house, creaky old thing. You could swear it was haunted. It was scary. <laughs> a- and I remember being the only person in this house that was multi-story at a central area that you could look right down from top floor to bottom and the stairways around the edges. And the students would come and stay in that place as uh, as students for re- residential students for a weekend or a week or whatever. So there's a lot of bedrooms around the, the circumference of this, this quadrangular building. And um, the only time no one was there was when I was there sleeping because they all disappeared. Because the f- bush would finish and I'd wait there for a few days between courses so it was pretty scary uh, and, and that, that was i remember one night locking my door and thinking i'm going to think about what to do next distract myself <laughs> you know and so so i ended up thinking "Brig, here we go is he still alive and it i thought probably not because he's probably very elderly but long story short i was able to go to the publishers of his first book um his second book rather um Alm- Almquist and Fixel in stockholm uh, so I wrote to them, emailed them, and said, look, I would like to get in contact with this author. And they said, look, we've handed the copyright back to him because it's finished in print, but here's here are his contact details. So I was able to write to him, um, and uh, his wife kindly replied... And said yes he's still a- available to meet you and so over the next couple of years I planned to go to Stockholm because I had to go there anyway but for teaching and he, he was uh, about an hour and a half north of Stockholm by train in a, a place called Sudaham, and um, we were able to meet him so two physios that I've been working collaborating with at the time we got a train and went up there and met him and it was just a, a remarkable experience with this elderly man who was in his death in his latter years of course had a few health issues of, uh, of course but uh, he, he and his wife were still there and I had the good fortune of meeting him and, and it was a very humbling experience the, the joy for me was he looked at me and said thank you I'm so pleased someone remains interested in my work what do you think Briggs major contribution was if you had to pick like one uh, or two things uh, um, understanding how the nervous system moves That's the big one. And the beauty beauty of it was he did it from many levels of analysis. Fantastic work. Was he talking about contralateral limb movements, things like that? Not at that stage. I I wasn't aware of any of that. But did you enlighten him on any um, of the stuff you were or was that he, he actually wasn't very physically capable mm. and so that, that even though we had a really nice time it wasn't that easy because he he, he was not well and we could only communicate in a reasonably rudimentary way mm-hmm. his wife obviously helped of course and and so we didn't get a lot of opportunity to discuss things in detail but it was more a sharing of a moment with that uh, between us all uh, it was a it, to me it was a joyous occasion a very humbling occasion mm-hmm. and I, I I got the feeling that he felt similar about it. I think the other fascinating thing,
0: the two icons in the world of neurodynamics, obviously you, but also David Butler, mm. live
2: 500 yards away from each other in yes, Australia. Yes, That is pure insanity to me. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's a suburb called Goodwood in Adelaide, and actually a number of physiotherapists uh, who have published re- research in this kind of area. Uh, it's not just David and me, it's some other people as well, Ellie Bell and so forth. So it's that's kind of amazing. a hot spot. And then
0: uh, it's just fascinating too who all you've been with in your in your life and career jeffrey maitland robin mckinsey uh i mean it's just the list goes on and on about who you've been able to to hang out with over the years it's absolutely amazing yes that's, that's
2: been a real pleasure real yeah. joy pretty awesome and so this book is not available right now but True. maybe in the future yes look i published this at his permission dr briggs permission with his wife um it's actually a reproduction of his, his second book so we've changed nothing i wanted to keep it authentic um so i just reproduce it at their permission give them a the royalty of course but we have been selling it and it's out of out of print at the moment because it's sold out but in in the not too distant future we hope to relaunch it and you obviously will hear for, hear about that in the future that's awesome. Not out of the Bible. Yeah, the Bible, your other book. So,
1: here we go. We just You just signed it for, for Brett as well. So, mm, yes. when did this go into publication? Uh,
2: 2005. Yeah. Mm. A young Michael Shacklock on the cover here. Yes, it's approaching 20 years now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's 2025, yeah, approaching 20 years.
1: When uh, when you first came to Troy for a course, uh, I remember you saying that not a lot has changed from when you first yes. published this book. Yeah. Mm. And uh, Brett and I always talk about that when we talk about you because so many people feel the urge to, you know, update and have the newest and greatest and things like that. But the principles have remained the same. Did you knew, know it at the time? or?
2: Um, I, I'm a little naive, meaning um, I just felt that I wanted to say what I thought. I didn't actually care about whether it was a success because I was probably going to be the only person who bought it anyway. And so, uh, to me, I felt the need to organize neurodynamics, for myself partly but also so it could be distributed uh, and disseminated to people who wanted to use it to me so for me the the, the key points and the organization was the critical part and so that that to me hasn't changed because those key points are based on fundamentals such as force on the nervous system we know that when you extend your back you press on your nerve roots within you know re- tolerances and reason um, and we know that when you flex tensions in the nervous system that will never change uh, and so if someone has a problem with those we can then categorise relationships or clinical features to to those mechanisms and so hopefully one of the reasons it hasn't changed is because the fundamentals haven't changed Beautiful.
0: Just so we get the history right, what is uh, Robert Elvey's major contribution? Mm -hmm. That's another major name that you
2: hear. Absolutely, yes. So Robert Elvey, um, first, uh, my my reading of his literature, I I remember the the first time I saw it was in um, 1984. But he had written uh, a number of papers uh, um, elucidating the idea that um, the you could create a straightly raised mechanism. for the upper limb so his his uh, brachial plexus tension test was what he pioneered in the 1970s uh, where he did some cadaver studies and arm movements to show that the the cervical nerve roots moved with arm movements now uh, that was foundational because we then realized that we could uh, move and test nerves as we could muscles tendons or joints so it was a really big step forward great credit to robert are we? yeah amazing that's great.
1: Well, uh, our hope we're 11 minutes in and we haven't even talked about the topic of this conversation. So that was a good, good little history lesson and stuff. So we're, the, the whole purpose is we, we want to talk about the misconceptions with neurodynamics. And so, uh, you know, we kind of explained neurodynamics, what it is. We've given some layman's terms for it and stuff, but let's, let's talk about maybe, uh, I mean, I, I can speak for myself as for the, you know, the first six or seven years that I was introduced to neurodynamics, I was bastardizing it and didn't really understand what the hell it meant. And I just thought it was sliders and tensioners and some people get better. Some people don't. And you know, the classifications weren't really there in my mind until I I saw you speak. So our first one is, is, Neurodynamics and neuromobilization those are
2: the same things right mm, good quick good point um, So that that leads me nicely into the statement that the, one of the the probably the biggest misconception In neuro, about neurodynamics is thinking that neurodynamics and neuromobilization are the same thing as you said Because they're simply not there's a lot of overlap uh, Because part of neurodynamics could involve neuromobilization But there's a ton of extra stuff in neuro in neurodynamics uh, that that isn't entirely directed at neural mobilization um, we have diagnostic categories based on functional disturbance and what I really like about the movement systems that are available these days is you have your categories you have your mechanisms clinical features and particularly with movement and kinesi- kinesiology but well, we haven't until not too long ago had the, the functional categories and so if you have someone who's got really severe pain they do not need neural mobilization necessarily what they might need is pain relief so we can Unload nerves as a part of treatment. Now, there's not neuromobilization, but it is neurodynamic treatment.
0: And I think. That's the big mistake that you'll see, like across the board. I think when, you know, the rest of the world is using neurodynamics or using you know some kind of treatment with neurodynamics, you might be using a static opener and maybe resting the nerve root. So I think that's that is a major misconception, and that was a mistake I was
2: definitely making uh, myself early on. Well, and that kind of is our next point: is force always needs to be applied? That's a good point. Now, with neuromobilization, we are always applying force to the nervous system. But the problem, the most common problem in the, the, the clinical syndromes we see in nerves in the musculoskeletal context is too much force. It's mm. pressure. Usually lumbar nerve root or, or carpal tunnel syndrome, the most common. Too much force and we apply force with neuromobilization. So to me there's a contradiction. And probably, if, if, we, if we can use descriptors for therapeutic effects, the gold standard is curative That's rare. The next step down will be corrective. Can't cure it, but we'll fix parts of it. And the third one will be adaptive, mm. and, and I reckon neural mobilisation is an adaptive procedure because it's we're applying force to something that's already forced on. So somewhere along the line, a change occurs. Might be improved viscoelastic function. It might be reduced sensitivity, altered blood flow. Uh, so that to me is an adaptive thing, uh, but it, but it's it's still applying force, mm-hmm. and, and it's to me it's not lo- not entirely logical. Mm, that's
1: Perfect. good. That's good. Well, well, And then uh, I think another thought of mine was when you're putting force into one area, we talked about it's not always force. If you're putting force into one area, you're obviously putting force into another area. Said another way, the... Uh, when you're tensioning the median nerve the cervical nerve root has to be involved with that as well mm. or or the force has to be equal on both of them depending mm, on yes. it, it doesn't really matter the sequencing
2: it doesn't matter anything like that the force is the force mm. so taylor is for the a- audience here taylor's leading me really well here <laughs> <laughs> and so the the next misconception is that when you apply force to one area it always produces the same or increased force in another area that is simply not true and the reason is that the part of my research recently is to look at contralateral nerve root behavior when you do a neurodynamic test. And it seems to apply in the cervical region. We have validated in the lumbar region. So if you do a straight leg raise on the right side, it moves the spinal cord down in the canal and that change in position reduces tension in the nerve root on the other side. Now that meant, look, I remember when we submitted this as a cadaver study and so forth to the general spine and one of the one of the um, the reviewers it was very very direct and I this is often the best way to learn they said you use researchers look like physical therapists and it was oh, really it's anonymous of course so I don't know because you physical therapists have a habit of making the measurable important instead of the important measurable now, that hit me in the guts, <laughs> uh, as it would, and it's, but it's true. We often over, overestimate the, the value of, of a data point or data uh, and misinterpret its value. And for me, the, 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 this, presumably the review was a medical practitioner and they're thinking surgically and medical biology and stuff like that. Absolutely right. But what we didn't explain well enough was the reason we were interested in contralateral testing is that if we can move the cord down and unload the other nerve root, we can give people pain relief through unloading nerve roots really important so the the misconception again is that when you load nerve roots on one side you're also doing it on the other no you are usually unloading the other
1: it's pretty amazing the, the biomechanics of that i i still grapple with them and it makes sense the more I hear it, but it's still a difficult. You got to see it, Michael's yeah. model
0: with the theraband. Yeah. and then then it makes perfect it, sense once you see it again. I'll
1: put a link because you you have that uh, on your YouTube page. Yes, I do. And mm-hmm. uh, I think once you see it, that it, everything starts to make sense from there. But it is a difficult concept, and, and uh, something that even in practice, every once in a while, I get to like close my eyes and say, okay. So if I do, you know, like you just yes. kind of get a, take a step mm. back. But mm. uh, so are you
0: the pioneer in that thought, Michael? Like, is
2: mm. did mm. you get that from someone else? Or yeah, you? I remember that. I, I remember when it happened. I've not seen that anywhere else. Uh, and in 1999, when I was doing the masters program in, in Adelaide, uh, which is heavily influenced by Maitland, of course, Mark Jones and Maitland and so forth, um, we the we were given a, a, a an assignment every fortnight, approximately, and each of us had to study a subject and present it. To the group, and there were sort of requirements, and one of them was an expansive review of the literature. Uh, that, but one of the, and if you did everything really well and summarised the subject perfectly, you only got a good mark. What they wanted you to do, wanted, wanted us to do, was be creative. And they said, we want to see something new. And so I made these working models. Got some wood and nails and elastic bands and created foramen and so forth uh, on, a, on a model, and realised when you do the nerve roots on one side, the cord comes down and it reduces tension on the other. And so I thought, wow, this is cool. And I must admit, did what, you sleep that night? Uh, well, <laughs> I was really interested. It was it, uh, it was a it was like a uh huh, you know, eureka. And, and so although when I presented it, it wasn't actually well um, accepted, understandably, it's pretty new and not studied and so forth, but I kind of has sat on that for a long time and um, presented on course courses as a hypothesis, but in the last few years we've actually validated those mechanisms in cadavers, fresh cadavers, uh, in in, cadavers, um, in neurodynamic testing, uh, competing against a sham in a control group in responses, and um, also measurement of spinal cord movement, showing that that's, that's a requirement. If you can't move the cord, you can't cross over to the other side. So that, that's part of my PhD, which is how to unload nerve roots, etc. And, and so it's a validated mechanism. Now, what's really nice is that there's a, there's a French anatomy group who we did not communicate with, who studied the same thing subsequently and showed the same results. So it seems to be generalisable. Well, I think, too, right, seeing it, it with the patients has probably been gratifying also, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can actually do a straight leg raise. Or it's usually hip flexion 90, knee extension 90 degrees and someone who's got sciatica, ipsilateral. Now, if you do it, obviously, if you straighten their knee, it's going to hurt them because it's a straight leg raise. But if you swap sides and do the same thing on the other side, often their leg pain diminishes. And to me, that's, that's gold. For pine pine relief, yeah, that's amazing. Absolutely.
1: What about the mechanism of nerve sliding, Michael? Mm-hmm. If I just extend my arm like this,
2: the nerve slides correctly. Uh, correct <laughs> correctly correct mm-hmm. okay that's a good question now th- this goes to the statement that not all sl- nerve sliders are sliders yeah now there's the history here is that the uh, the nerve sliding stuff is is partly uh, studied r- contemporarily as a, in ultrasound uh, technology we're using ultrasound imaging now The problem is that no one walks to work with an ultrasound head on their their forearm, so the view the ultrasound head gets is artificial. Uh, But it emulates bone, because the ultrasound head allegedly doesn't move much, neither does bone when it comes to nerve sliding. Uh, Now, nerves are, are dependent on their immediate interface. So if you have a tendon that is next to a nerve, looking from an ultrasound onto the nerve as if it were bone is artificial because the tendons move with the nerve or in the opposite direction to the nerve. The bone doesn't. And so what we have done is cre- we have created a, an artificial situation where we're actually getting a wrong impression of how nerves slide. Mm. And, and for instance, if, if, uh, if we're thinking of the carpal tunnel, if we extend our fingers and thumb, the tendons move distally, of course, with the fingers, and so do the nerves. Uh, does the nerve a little bit, but less. But the problem is that if we extend our fingers and then extend our elbow, the, f- the tendons go distally, the nerve moves proximally there's a very different mechanism from what's been measured in the studies there's a huge amount of sliding relative to the media interface compared with doing, Yeah, you know, I hate to say it but my love-hate relationship with the social media errs toward the hate side <laughs> because what you see on YouTube is often incorrect mm-hmm. you see beautiful sliders, lovely but they often don't slide because they're not taking into account the immediate interface for the nerve, which is often tendon, and particularly in the wrist, it is tendon. So bone is irrelevant when it comes to analysis of the sliding, but the studies emulate it as if it were bone. Mm-hmm. So there are misconceptions on how to slide nerves. Now, if we want to go want to, go to the more, one of the more common sliders, which is lateral flexion, IPSI, and then elbow extension for a slider of the nerve root in the c-spine that is not a slider for the, the nerve root in the c-spine because the foramen moves with the nerve root so they move together like relative movement mm, yeah. it's all about relativity yes and so if you if you move the foramen with the nerve root it ain't sliding It's just moving together. So it's moving in space, but they're together, so they're not sliding on each other. So unfortunately, the distal slider for the nerve in the neck is contralateral lateral flexion, elbow extension, wrist extension, which happens to be a tensioner. So the early tension is a slider, But late tension is less sliding, much more tension. So there are misconceptions, and it's all about relativity. We know the nervous system is Newtonian. It follows the laws of physics. But when you get to sliding, you've got to think of Einsteinian mechanisms, or figuratively, if you will, sliding relative to the interface. It's much more complex than we thought, and unfortunately a lot of us are getting it wrong. Right. It's true. Uh,
1: What about... This is, this is one that I wrote down because this is one that I thought th- the neurodynamics test is going to give you the diagnosis or mm. the pathology, <clears throat> the disease that you're dealing with, uh, you're, you're going to be able to do a neurodynamic test and yeah. it's going to say, yep, this is whatever.
2: <clears throat> yes, that's a really good one. Now, um, if you think of um, a disease and pathology, that's detected with things like radiology, electrophysiology, the kind of medical tests. Um, Now if you do a neurodynamic test there are people who have a paralyzed nerve, bad results on on electrophysiology but they can have a perfectly normal neurodynamic test and unfortunately there is a group of it out there where the diagnostic efficacy studies at best are imperfect. At worst, they're worse than flipping a coin, and what I mean by that is, if you have carpal tunnel syndrome, that that is a constellation of clinical features. Of course, Um, it could be a neuropathy found by electrophysiology. But they mu- but you could also still have an abnormal test. Someone could have normal electrophysiology but have an abnormal neurodynamic mm-hmm. test. And so what we now know is that we you know, with great work from Jeff Bove, uh, many of, of you hopefully you would have heard of. If not, don't worry. We're going to talk about him at some point. And, and so uh, if you do a, ne- a neurodynamic test... Um, what it detects is sensitivity and impairment of movement, and that is that goes right back to the fundamentals in, in 1995 when I wrote the first paper describing neurodynamics. <coughs> Integration of mechanics and physiology is how it happens; uh, they're dynamically interdependent. And so, if you lack movement, you could hurt. If you get if you're sensitive, you could hurt. <coughs> and so, the neurodynamic test picks up a subgroup of people who have movement-related nerve pain that it's not a medical diagnosis it's a functional diagnosis and me being a physical therapist and you guys being chiropractors we are functionists great really important area to work in and so you could have in flame nerve, from Jeff Bove's Beau, work, it is um, it's he's been he's shown that you can have normal conduction through inflammation, but it can be hypersensitive. So they're they're not testing for the same mechanisms between electrophys and neurodynamics, and so there's a bit of a discrepancy, not a clo- not always a close relationship. We're we're detecting a subgroup, which is a really important subgroup.
0: And this kind of leads us to the next misconception. It's a perfect segue of. That a neurodynamic test would tell you the site of entrapment. Uh, so, yes. mm-hmm. and that I think that is one of the biggest misconceptions. If you took the everyone who attended our seminar this weekend before the seminar started, I would bet you one hundred percent of that room would have thought that neurodynamic testing is going to tell you the exact location mm-hmm. where the entrapment site could potentially be. Can you explain how? Uh, It's not a 100% rule. You're gaining information from that as you're sequencing the neurodynamic Mm, test, but that uh, you probably wouldn't push
2: all your chips in as far as knowing exactly where the site is going to be. Yeah, that's a good question, good point. So um, the the history of that is that um, my my thesis for my my master's in 1989 was on neurodynamic sequencing. So the idea was... It's a hypothesis that at that time of course. It's based on observations that if you do say wrist extension, then elbow extension abduction of the shoulder, then contralateral lateral flexion, that you're focusing the forces on the nerve and the wrist, because that's where you start. But if you reverse it, it's on the neck. And so the idea was you'd compare them and maybe one being worse at one end than the other would tell you where the problem is. That's actually, I agree, that it gives you ideas and and sort of uh, an introduction and and variables to consider. It makes you think of that area, but uh, we've done some study in the lab up in Barcelona um, where we're actually using Microstrain devices to, to see what happens to uh, the nerve elongation with different sequences and Michelle Coppitas and Bob Knee have done research in the series well where it turns out that if you use the same ranges of motion at the end of all tests with, no matter what sequence it is, the elongation is actually the same. So it's not its not actually the sequence, it's the range of motion at the end of the test. And so if I were to extend my wrist first without the elbow extended, I'd get a lot of wrist extension. So I can load the tissues locally really well, and then I can add nerve. Uh, but if if you then return it all to the same angle, uh, angles of all joints, that's reversed. And so uh, we, we've also studied this in the lab with um, con- Using the same ranges of motion that you that happen when you do this in a in a, in a conscious subject, but in in the cadaver, so we have kind of got a profile of which joints will move how much when you do a neurodynamic test with a specific sequence. Because the person says, "Well, that's stretching. You better stop." So we know where where we should stop and the ranges of motion at each at each point. And what's what we show is that when you use the the patient or the individual conscious person response range of motion, you put into the clava then you have something you don't have as much elongation where you finish last or and you have it much more when you start first and so that's a helpful thing but it's not a determinant because many other factors determine where the nerve is sensitive and and what might be causing it so i agree it's a it's a factor but it it doesn't actually tell us where the problem is because it's a long continuous system it's moving all all that long part and and so and also with physiology spreading around nerves and so forth. It's not so easy, and so I agree. It's, it is a misconception, um, and so I would use other uh, aspects of assessment to figure out where the nerve the nerve problem is mostly located.
1: Where does differentiation?
2: plan to that? Okay, differentiation is when you move the nerve in the area of, of, of attention or the, the of relevance without moving the neighbouring musculoskeletal structures. And so if we have a, a, a wrist pain the differentiating movement is to hold the distal part of the limb stable and you move the lateral flexion. And in certain, in most situations we know that that moves the nerve at the wrist but it does not move the tendons and muscles. So that we are emphasising nerve in the differentiating manoeuvre and so clinically if we reproduce a patient's pain with a neurodynamic test and we move the nerve from another area without moving MSK in the area of the problem and it does not change we are moving the nerve patient's pain doesn't change it's not the nerve so they do not go to the neurodynamics hospital they stay in the musculoskeletal hospital so initially it's an elimination technique but you can have to switch it sometimes into an implication technique Exclusion
1: criteria. Yes, exactly. Inclusion exclusion criteria, which yeah. we had a great conversation about on the way uh, to Brett's house today. I mean, I think that that is a that's a mark in in all the systems that we really enjoy. Everything has an ex- inclusion and exclusion criteria. We were talking about pal- palpation on the way here. Palpation in the spine has an inclusion exclusion. You have hypermobility. Probably not going to manipulate that area. No different than neurodynamics. You have inclusion to put it in the neurodynamics hospital. You have exclusion that says it is not. But yeah. to
0: Michael's credit, I think neurodynamics has probably done the best job of kind of mapping out what that exclusionary criteria exactly looks Absolutely. like. You know. And I think that as a clinician, I mean that gives you so much information whether or not to know that. This is actually a neurodynamic case, or it's not, and then you know all of us within this room, I and mean, we all have tools for the case that is not in the neurodynamic hospital. But
2: knowing that is such a, a critical part of decision making for the future. Oh, I absolutely agree, and I think one of the things I like about systems is they're efficient. You can't you have to think less because you know your stuff. Um, but what they lack is often flexibility. Um, so you need four things: inclusion, and exclusion criteria, which we now have. Um, you need Uh, diagnostic categories or functional categories uh, or dysfunctional categories you need progressions for each one of them and you need an exit strategy now if there ever there were a an inclusion or exclusion criterion for neurodynamics it would be abnormal neurodynamic tests they may be included if it's perfectly normal they they would be excluded I think too, uh,
0: it's been really refreshing for the last couple days to hear you remind us that we do have the ability to palpate because there's people in the world that are telling us whether it's a joint, muscle, soft tissue, trigger point, a nerve, that there's no reliability in palpation. So before we uh, hit the next one, uh, what what is your take on that? Yeah, when, okay. when people tell you that Michael Shacklock is not able to palpate nerves, does...
2: Mm, yeah, well... My position is don't give up. You've got to keep going because I trust what I feel. Now, for example, as I mentioned on the course, you can feel a piece of grit on your trackpad. You know it's there. And if you look carefully, you often can't see it you flick your hand around and brush it, it disappears, and you can now slide your hand without a a, a little lump on your finger. Now, it's very sensitive, very specific. Um, Now, if we come to diagnosis with palpation, I think the problem is not so much the palpation, it's the interpretation of what happens. And so uh, if I press on a nerve... I can feel a nerve. I've done it in cadavers and then opened them. I'm confident that I can feel a nerve and it's been tested. I've worked with anatomists who can't find nerves and I say, palpate it, here it is, and they cut it open and there it is. And and so uh, they're surprised that I can palpate uh, and find a nerve. Now, I'm not saying everyone's reliable, but it doesn't mean don't do it. Right, you know, optical, uh, uh, retinal cell activity and vision don't correlate. But don't close your eyes. <laughs> I think you had a great analogy today, like with a plumber who's
0: screwing. You know, you know, even people outside of our profession, like they still are using feel and touch to kind of know what's wrong with you know, in in their
2: respective crafts. All, all day. Yeah. You know, and so whilst we uh, there's a lot of criticism of palpation. Uh, I trust what I see, I trust what I feel, and unfortunately, particularly I feel for young people in, in the industry these days, because they're, they're reading PDFs, they say, don't do that, it doesn't work. Well, you have an experience, I, I suggest practice, learn, and, and that will help you develop the experience to trust your observations. Right. One of the most important things in a clinical practice, trust your observations. Right. It doesn't mean we get everything right, um, but there are studies now that show, and well, Anina Schmidt's group has shown, that if you palpate, to produce a response in healthy subjects the, the from day to day the responses are really reliable and so it, it, don't give up, it's not solved but to me, I'm going to keep trusting my observations.
0: And the, uh, the research in the MDT world also has shown that if you've gone through the coursework then you are reliable so compared to somebody who hasn't like been you know certified in a technique system which makes perfect sense but it's worth repeating so if you go through the coursework and you've been trained a certain way then you can be reliable but you know if you take a random off the street and you ask them to do a neurodynamic test well we wouldn't
2: expect them to get the same findings as Michael Shacklock. yeah yeah, exactly yeah a lot of it is about learning uh, getting your skills right absolutely yeah Um, and if we sort of it through to extreme situation. The the the, the lady we I saw yesterday with um, uh, the the upper lumbar problem, mm-hmm. buttock pain and stuff. Um, if you said to to an average health practitioner, can you palpate the cervical spine? I reckon you'd go to the neck, don't you reckon? <laughs> and if you had a hundred uh, even young health practitioners who weren't fully qualified and said, please palpate the cervical spine, I reckon they'd all go, all go to the neck. Now, a, the question is how intricate the reliability is tested at. Do you, do you go for C5 or you go for C6? But if you go for the neck, you've got to right. So the threshold for reliability is to some extent uh, a little bit artificial. If you press on an area that's really quite stiff and tight, I'm okay with thinking it's stiff and tight. Right. Uh, and, and if it's stiffer and tighter on one side, I'm okay with picking the correct side. So, the part of it is threshold and sensitivity. If you focus on the minutiae, it will get wrong, because often it's the wrong level of analysis. Right. (laughs) And like this Dr. Levitt, that sage over there, he said the most powerful diagnostic
0: tool that's ever existed is a human hand. You know so as technology continue, we have artificial intelligence, we have MRIs, we have CT scans, but at the end of the day, we have all the
2: years of experience that are built into our, mm. to our hands. Y- I think y- yeah. And there's a study that by Ali, Ali Rushton's group um, that shows that, that when the, uh, uh, physical, physiotherapists are mentored by senior practitioners, they get better clinical outcomes than the ones who are not mentored by senior cl- clinicians. That's all right.
1: Thanks for being s- my senior citizen, Brett. I
2: appreciate you. <laughs> wow, that's tough. <laughs> so, so the, uh, the experience counts, you know. It's a kind of a shame that we have to have this discussion because to me it's obvious. But, uh, but you know, a lot of people don't accept it, so you kind of feel you have to prove it. But So these, these subtleties, the nuances, uh, as Stu McGill says, you're playing jazz. Um, you know, there is there's complexity, there's intricacies there's uniqueness, and, and we have general laws of what the body we have general structure, but individuals are, are so unique and, and look, there are 8 billion of us on this planet, I've been a clinician for 40 years, and I've never seen two people the same and so if you can't deal with uniqueness then you are going to be a generalist and you will lack choice if you can get specific with your hands included you have more choice you can do more i feel you can do more with the patient i think in jeffrey maitland that was one of his themes where
0: systems are really important early on but then you got to be nimble enough to kind of like think outside of your system when the case calls for that yeah i yeah. agree absolutely yeah. agree mm-hmm.
2: yeah yeah
1: it's beautiful we crushed it is that it so, any any ones that we missed that you maybe thought of or anything like that, Michael? Any anything to get off your chest here? This is your, your chance to kind of write the ship if we haven't haven't discussed anything.
2: Um, I think one of them would be that we can't produce tissue changes. Hmm. You know, we need we in, in the lab. If you, if you, um, uh, for instance, uh, put a bit of tension on a nerve manually, so you get your finger on the nerve and pull on it, and fiddle, you oscillate, it actually changes position. It gets softer in that area and it, you get, it develops a, a little ripple. But if you, if you come back 15 minutes later, it's gone back and you didn't do anything to it. So it's retreated, it's visceral and so forth. So it's quite dynamic. And if you go to Jeff Bove's work, um, he's shown that you massage in, in a bowel irritation model where you know, they get an abrasive and rub the bowel and produce an adhesion. You massage it for two minutes after the surgery and they don't get as big adhesions. And this is a sort of stuff that people don't don't really pay attention to, and uh, unfortunately, I think the social media thing is actually really good because you can distribute information, but it's made it harder to figure out what's what's accurate. And, and, and so you see this stuff it doesn't produce tissue changes and stuff like that, but actually, it's been shown that it, ha- it can. And so uh, and you see people you might look at scar tissue and you on the skin and you massage it and do stuff to it, you soften it. Uh, you, know, you, you can change tissue, um, so people like what they read because they read what they like, and so there's a lot of bias out there. And I, I would really like people to read the literature expansively, and and don't invest in an outcome. And it, when you invest in the outcome, you, you lose the truth. And so that that, that other one is you, you can change tissues. I feel it in nerves. You massage a nerve. You do stuff to nerve. You can reduce swelling in a nerve been shown with mri now and so don't underestimate the power of the hand your specificity and your skills and their effect on the tissues
0: uh i don't know how it is in australia but one of the most overly prescribed medications in the united states is a classification of drugs called gabapentin Mm -hmm. so your neurontins, your Mm lyrica like this class of drugs used to treat peripheral
2: nerve pain Mm. uh what's your take on the use of gabapentin is it Yes. Um, look, I have seen patients of using it, and I've not seen a lot of benefit. Right. Um, there's there's a quite a small. Th- my understanding is that there's quite a small therapeutic window. So once you get to a therapeutic effective, do- therapeutically effective dose, you're often close to overdosing in terms of side effects. Yeah. A- and so slowing of speech. Yeah. I mean, just slows everything. Yes, they get yeah. drowsy and they don't mm. sleep the same and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, um, um, drugs are not really my main area, but. Um, I'm not seeing great effects with drugs and nerve pain Um, but in our case we could look at the function like neurodynamic testing mechanical sensitivity and work on those to help people's nerve pain very powerful effects in some people
0: we had a You and I had a really good conversation on the way to the office this morning. I almost drove past the office so we could keep talking about it, and that was the clinical reasoning process, Mm. pattern recognition, Mm. uh, how good clinicians have the ability to kind of triage and know what to do at the right time. Can you speak of that and uh, what you've noticed over the
2: years makes for good clinicians in in that area? Mm. Look, I, I feel very fortunate to have learned clinical reasoning from Mark Jones, who was an American physical therapist. I think it was Iowa, um, and he went to (coughs) Adelaide, Australia, um, to learn to be with Jeff Maitland, of course. uh, And he developed quite a close relationship with Jeff. And uh, and Jeff would, for instance, do a, a presentation on a patient, and Mark or someone would say, "Well, why did you do that?" And he said, "Oh." That's easier because this, 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 and this. And my understanding, rightly or wrongly, is that Mark was the guy who said, well, that's exactly what we need to learn. We need to learn how you think. And he broke it down into the, the cornerstones, one of which is pattern recognition. And, and it's known that the experienced clinicians ask fewer questions and they come to the answer more quickly, and so, um, that is a really important part of clinical reasoning, pattern recognition. And being a neurodynamic therapist, I've seen quite a few neurodynamic patterns. so I, I kind of get, get through it quite quickly. And I must say, I probably don't explain it well enough. Uh, but that is a really important thing. And I remember that the patient with um, gluteal pain we saw. Um, I said at the end of it, well, that is archetypal. That's exactly what I expected to happen. And a comment would be, well, because I've seen a pattern before. Uh, and that is a really important part of all clinical practice, uh, including neurodynamics.
0: Which a, um, a young clinician doesn't want to hear that, but the reality of it is, part of it is getting reps and experience in, in what you're doing.
2: Yes, it sure is. Yeah.
0: Mm.
1: And finding a good mentor. We yeah. talked about that earlier. Yeah, yeah I mean, actually, that, that's, that's, that,
2: that's a good comment. Uh, and, you know, I've been approached to, by younger people to said, look, who sh- what should I do to develop my career? And that's one of my comments. Just find a mentor who's willing to spend time with you, um, who's not particularly invested in a style or a type of treatment, um, except to educate you on how to include it or exclude it. I mean, we, we do get our favourites, of course, and that's kind of natural, um, but, but someone who's pretty balanced in their opinions is a really important uh, mentor to have Mm -hmm.
0: i think we always say the younger generation the lost art of the apprenticeship i feel like as time goes along the younger students they don't um they don't see the benefit of even if you're not getting paid for it just being able to hang out with somebody who is you know able to show you kind of the the ins and outs of the craft i think yeah. that
2: is for some reason kind of gone away and I don't, I don't know why that is but that's that's kind of a shame oh, 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 really. i suspect it's time pressure availability of information if you can get a get a quick uh, instagram post on uh, or with a with an infographic then it kind of solves it doesn't it right. well it doesn't really but it makes you think it does well i
0: think everyone now too thinks they're the expert you know like I definitely in my career know my place and where this is all going and i think it's funny like the younger some of the younger clinicians are I don't know like n- not that they haven't earned the right but they you know they just haven't seen things enough to have an opinion on it
2: you know yeah it's all about learning yeah i, I agree so my advice to <coughs> excuse me younger people would be try and connect with a mentor who's, who's got broad experience and is willing to impart their information and look i'm a bit of an old guy now of course entering that that era in my life and i said to one of the people at the course today you know i, I see sort of feel it's part of our obligation as more senior people to impart this stuff to the younger people because right. without that what do you have
1: yeah that's awesome that's how you leave your that. mark too you mm, know like yeah, yeah. that's, that's mm. it, absolutely so mm. well I'm out of wine guys yeah is that mean we're done it's been a long day Michael's been talking to us non-stop for the last I don't know four <laughs> or five days and yeah. so we're just super appreciative of, of your uh, you coming here number one you teaching us you being graceful with your time and and for the work that you've done for this profession and for musculoskeletal health in general so um it's it's truly an honor and uh uh we're we're just we're yeah we're just appreciative of you
2: so well thank you very much it's an honor for me it's a great opportunity and i look back on on why i started getting into physical therapy to help people still there for the same reason yeah yeah thank you
1: preach yeah awesome beautiful again Yep. yep thanks michael let's go drink some more wine hang out Talk about something besides Neurodynamics for a little yeah, bit, yeah, maybe. Of course. <laughs> of, of course, yeah. See you guys. So Have you a good day. Some- I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gasol Education Show. Uh, If you liked it, share it, subscribe to it, uh, send it to your friends, send it to someone that needs to hear this message. Uh, We really want everyone to be able to to tune in and and get the the best clinical advice that they can, which uh, we're hoping that we're giving to you with these special guests. So um, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us. Or if you have any suggestions on upcoming uh, conversations, let us know. Uh, For a list of our upcoming courses, we're adding them all the dang time. So go to gestaltedu.com click on courses and they'll all be right there for you. All right. Have a good day.